Welcome to our podcast, Forgotten Victims, The Forensic Interview. Forensic interviewing traditionally has been associated with child victims. Over the past decade, there's been an evolution in the field of forensic interviewing where it's being applied to vulnerable victims of all ages, forgotten victims, victims with disabilities, mental health disorders, and older adult populations. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about how to establish rapport with someone who's labeled quote-unquote nonverbal or doesn't speak, maybe communicates with gestures, uses a communication device, or even speaks few words. So um, that's something that comes up in our trainings a lot, and I'm excited to talk with you about that today, Scott. Yeah, definitely. And so we talk about, and we're, we're almost like sort of theatrical and histrionic when we say, you know, rapport is everything. So it's really important. I'm glad we're going to be talking about this today. And I think that one of the things that comes up first and foremost is what are just some assumptions that people maybe make or believe when they hear this term, you know, nonverbal, or if someone's labeled quote unquote nonverbal, what, what does that mean? And what does that do for us on our cases? Yeah, it's such a shitty term. So, uh, and we talk in our trainings about moving away from it. And the reason why it's a shitty term is that it, it's operates under the assumption that we all have the same mental model of what we mean when we say nonverbal. Um, there really isn't just a, a clear definition. I mean, if you go to the research, you go to the Journal of Verbal Behavior, you probably could pull out some things, what we mean by verbal behavior. And then if somebody's nonverbal, means they don't have any of those things. Generally, it means different things to different people. It's, a not a, it's, it's one of those terms that's not observable, right? So when we label somebody nonverbal, as we've talked about this before, it can send cases down this track where nobody's going to try to talk to the individual, might not be investigated. So we want to move away from that. Because to some people, nonverbal means they don't speak. To others, means maybe they speak a few words. And it's really problematic. So what we recommend is really just describing somebody's communication ability as opposed to labeling them nonverbal. So because otherwise, then we're just left with my own mental model of what nonverbal means, your own mental model of what it means, and it's not really useful um, information. Right, because it focuses on the non, right? So it's like what somebody can't do or, you know, belief that somebody can't do versus what maybe they can do, which is a lot more useful and valuable to us. Yeah, I think that adds to the, the problematic nature and the, the uh, with the term. Again, it, it means different things to different people. And I would say over, you know, 20 plus years of doing this, when I hear nonverbal, I know it means different things to different people because then you experience people who are labeled nonverbal and some speak really well, some say a few words. And really what we're talking about here is the idea of communication. And that's what we really want to focus on because some of that communication is going to be vocal speaking. Mm -hmm. Some of it will be uh, through gestures and other ways. And while we talk about how important establishing rapport is, it does sort of create some challenges to say, okay, So if we're establishing rapport and using free narrative and narrative prompts to establish rapport, which is, you know, the research is going to tell us that that's how we want to do it. And uh, the person only communicates yes, no with thumbs up or thumbs down or only communicates on a communication device with yes, no. How do you do that? So it's important to not skip rapport. So that's the first thing. And I know we talk about that in a couple of our episodes and always in our trainings. But rapport can't be skipped just because we, you know, maybe believe that someone can't share information with us. So what we would encourage is finding something that you can have a conversation with somebody about. And like you mentioned, that's tricky because maybe they can only give a yes, no sort of response. So what we would encourage you to do is maybe even get some information ahead of time about the things the person likes to do. So some of their strengths, if 
you have the opportunity to speak with an non-offending caregiver or someone in their life about an activity they enjoy, it might be an opportunity for you to ask them some questions about that in a way that would be considered non-leading, non-suggestive, and may help you get to that that area of rapport that's so important. Again, it's everything. If we don't have that, we have nothing. And then maintain it throughout the interview. Yeah, and, and I, I think that that idea of establishing rapport, and, and instead of saying with somebody who's nonverbal, we the language we would use is if they don't speak, then say that. It's somebody who doesn't speak. Right. I you know, know we could give lots of examples, but why don't you share an example of how you might have established rapport not how you might have. You did. I did. Yeah. I did do how that. How you establish your report with somebody who doesn't speak. So, so I was, uh, you know, a case was referred to me. It was a young man in his 20s. And uh, with autism spectrum disorder, people said he was nonverbal. I asked some more questions about that. Uh, it turns out he didn't speak, but was given some information that he maybe understood what was being said to him, could certainly talk with me about different activities and things that he liked to do. So uh, on this particular day, he happened to be wearing a shirt for a sports team, and uh, it was hockey, and I was able to ask him some questions about it. So I said, hey, I see that you have you know hockey team on your shirt. Um, I'd like to ask you some questions about that. And I asked him if he'd ever been to a hockey game. And he said yes, or gestured yes. So again, those yes, no questions. And then I asked was him. That, that was how he was able to communicate through yes, no? Yes. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I know he was actually like nodding and shaking yeah, his so, head. Yeah, so walk, so walk us through it. So he would nod or shake his head, nod for yes, shake his head for no. So yeah, keep going. This is great. So I asked him if he'd ever been to a hockey game. And he said yes. And I told him I wanted to ask him all about the last hockey game that he had been to. So I was able to ask him questions about, you know, who he went with and, you know, knew a little bit about his life and the people in his life. So I asked him, you know, whether his mom or dad or any of his friends or any of the staff at the house that he lived at had been there with him. And again, those all turned into yes, no questions without me sort of rapid firing them. So, you know, it was a general way of just being curious, sort of thinking out loud about the different experiences someone had when they go to a sporting event. So I was able to ask him about who he went with, whether or not he got any food, anything else he remembered about the game and their seats and where they parked. And so I was able to get a lot of really good information. And what we always try to think about when we're establishing rapport or doing sort of this narrative practice, even though he wasn't necessarily narrating with me, I was still getting you know a story from him of an experience he'd had in his life thinking about things that we would want to know, like if a crime had happened at that hockey game. So knowing how we got there and what, where who they parked, there? who was there, witnesses, and his surroundings would have been helpful. So it was a great way to get some information from him and for him to know the types of information uh, questions I'd be asking and the exactly. kind of information I wanted to get. So it's something, it sounds simple, of course. When people are hearing that, they're like, that sounds like I could easily do that. It, it does have some complexities, of course, but really making sure that we think out loud, ask those questions, and have some genuine curiosity about people's experiences, giving them an opportunity to share with us about their life. Yeah, and 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 the fact that you, like recognize you can do it. You can mm -hmm. do this. It's not like exceedingly complex. You just have to realize that you can do it. It's a bit nuanced. But we, you need to establish rapport for building trust, confidence, reducing anxiety, and then really establishing that baseline, really like what information uh, can they provide you. So when in doubt, try to stick with the same goals that you would have if, the, if this was a individual who what we might label neurotypical uh, individual. So what this makes me think of is, and you alluded to this, sort of the prep work you did. And I know in our trainings, we do a lot on what we call pre-interview considerations. Um, what are some pre-interview considerations that might be useful in a, in a situation with uh, this individual? We'll call him Dave. 
So, uh, so for Dave's case, I had the opportunity to speak with his parents, who he had actually lived with for most of his life. So um, they had had successful interaction with him for you know twenty plus years. So those were people I felt really um, you know excited to be able to talk to. And so I asked them, okay, so and they even used the word nonverbal, and I responded with, so what does that mean? So how Good. does he communicate? That's oh. so. I just want to pause there. Yes. That so so for those listening who do this, when you hear that. It, you know, when somebody says somebody's nonverbal, even though earlier I said it's a shitty term, it's not to get upset about. Right. It's your cue to go, awesome, tell me more about that. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, those types How of things. How does Dave get his needs met? How does yeah. he let you know that he's hungry or Does thirsty? he speak at all? Right. Like those types of things. Does yeah. he uh, actually was able to find out that he, uh, he writes so he could write some words. So that was also helpful in the interview um, when we got to the point of asking about what had happened he wrote the offender's name down so like again very helpful sure. I, I'm not having to ask a bunch of questions about that and he can he can write it made me made me think about um, and not to cut you off but it made me think about a case I had where I was interviewing uh, this young woman I was actually conducting an, a, an assessment and she spoke but um, it was really difficult to understand her and knowing that and got this in the pre-interview piece that she could write when she got to a word that I really or a sentence I couldn't understand she was able to oh she didn't write I should put write in quotes she would um text it on her phone oh, so even typing she right. would type mm-hmm. it on her phone in the note she had the you know she pulled up the notes app and would type it and then I could understand what she was saying so knowing those types of information can help with all, all different types, whether somebody speaks or doesn't speak and so forth. Well, and it's interesting when we go back to this label or term of nonverbal, that might be somebody who wouldn't be labeled, labeled nonverbal because she was talking, but maybe you couldn't understand her. So oh, like, some people did label her nonverbal, oh, by it, the way. They but, did. But that's Absolutely. what we all have different ideas of what that means, exactly. back to our earlier point. Yep. So, that's why it's, a, again, I'll say it again. And again, <laughs> I, our producer, Maddie, said I can swear, right? So yes. it's a shitty term. It's a shitty term because it's not useful. And it doesn't yeah, mean we sh- it is, shouldn't yeah. correct. We, we know we shouldn't necessarily correct people who say it, but it should prompt us to ask some more questions. And those questions are things like, okay, so what exactly does that mean? How do they communicate? How do they get their needs met? What should I know? Do they understand you know, questions or do they understand what's being said to them? And how do you know? So those are the, the prompts that I would encourage people to think about as we maybe you know get into this world of making sure that we're setting up interviews and giving people an opportunity to tell us about what's going on in their lives and then of course not skipping that report piece the other thing about pre-interview considerations that i always try to encourage is if you can get information from multiple sources so if it's a um, if it's a child we'll just start with that example and you can talk to someone at home and someone at school of course with proper releases confidentiality being very important and because what i found is that kids often interact differently at home than they do at school sometimes they have devices at home and not at school or vice versa. So knowing how they communicate in more than one setting can also be helpful yeah, for not, us. Not only may they have devices at home and not at school or vice versa, they may have them at one or the other and use them at one or not the other and not use it at home or use it at school or vice versa. Exactly. So if they have a device asking those types of questions, in what settings do they use their device? Um, how long have they had their device is another one because I was asked to do an interview one time with a child who, uh, again, non-labeled, non-verbal, and had a communication device, but he'd only had it for two weeks. So he wasn't, Matters. yeah, he wasn't comfortable using it. It wasn't the best way for he and I to communicate. So at first I was really excited that he had a device, but then when I found that out, I was like, oh, that'd be like interviewing him in a different language almost. Yeah. I, I was excited. Same thing that this woman had a, a we were, I was at the house. She had a communication device 
and I asked her to show it to me. I was told she had one. I asked her to show it to me. She showed it to me and then put it back in the drawer, put her clothes over it, and closed the drawer and, and shook her head no, meaning she had the device, but she hated using it mm-hmm. and wasn't going to use it. Yeah, and that's important for us to know, too. We shouldn't assume that just because someone has a device that they prefer to use it or that they want to, that they're going to want to that day. And the other like flip side of that, just to, since we're telling stories, the flip side of that is we also have to be careful that when we have those conversations with alleged non-offending caregivers that they might tell us oh so and so doesn't like using their device as a way to try to prevent them from being able to disclose so finding out from that yep. individual what their actual device preference is preferences without necessarily making assumptions about it yeah we're telling we're telling success stories i have a very funny non-success story <laughs> or a frustrating story about devices so this is uh information i didn't get ahead of time I didn't ask the right questions, and this was early on in my in my work. But I was asked to try to communicate with this uh, woman with intellectual disabilities. It was a severe neglect case, and they said, you know, nobody can communicate with her. The district attorney asked me to go talk with her, and I said, well, you know, I'm not not like a human whisperer. I may <laughs> right. not be able. No magic wand. Right. I may <laughs> not be able to, but I'll I'll do my best. And um, so I go to her home, and you know, the DA's there. And, you know, I'm talking, trying to talk with her. And I asked her, you know, she was excited that I was there. She really liked new people. And I said, you know, what are some of your favorite things to do? And she would get up and she put on the record player and um, would like to dance. And I said, you know, where's your room? And she got up and showed me where her room was. She could do all this stuff, but she really, you know, what didn't speak and there was no discernible sort of gestures that I, I had from her. And I remember, you know, trying to talk with her. And then I brought up this, um, you know, I brought up her mother. And then she started screaming and hitting her head and then didn't want to talk, you know, didn't, you know, like kind of ran away. And then we put on some music and she calmed down a little bit. And then it was time for a snack, apparently. And she goes into the, we go into the kitchen. And the workers there bring out this red button and a green button. And they go, do you want apple juice? She hits the red button. Do you want orange juice? She hits the green button. And I'm looking and I'm going, are you fucking kidding me? In my head, I didn't say this out loud. Right. Are you fucking... She has communication devices. She has a yes, no device. Right. That would have been really helpful to know that a little information while ago. would have been helpful yesterday. Right. right. Yeah. So um, I was just like, man, you know why I didn't know? Because I didn't freaking ask. Mm-hmm. So... Um, that at the time, in real time, I was like, you know, annoyed that they didn't tell me, right. but I didn't ask for it. So that that's a really good, that was a good lesson for me to learn. Well, and, and it's... <laughs> it's wasted it's, so much time. So much time. Well, I wouldn't say it was always. Sure. Time, I mean, it was yeah. still sounds like you were establishing rapport and getting to know and, you De- know, Definitely, yourself. but yeah, it was, it was a mess No, overall. that's so funny. Yeah. So it's... Glad it was all in video. It's a... It's a good success story because we can learn from it, right? That's right. There you and go. Strength-based. It's very strength-based. So I have a similar story, but it's it sort of has actually the opposite lesson. So for I was called to do a case uh, in a different state, and same thing, communication device. She'd had it for a while. She was comfortable. I'd asked all, I thought I'd asked all the questions that I needed to ask, and um, people had told me. I got information from two different sources, both home and school in this situation because she was a child, and 
during the interview, she was using her device and she'd use some American Sign Language. And, you know, I was clarifying those gestures with her. And then all of a sudden I was asking her a question about what a sign meant and she started speaking. So everybody had told me that she <laughs> didn't talk. And then all of a sudden she's speaking and I'm there and trying not to react because I'm like, holy smokes, everybody told me that she doesn't speak. And all of a sudden she's saying what the signs mean. So she was speaking in maybe three or four word sentences. And I went from doesn't speak at all using gestures and the device to all of a sudden very quickly being able to transform my interview because sometimes she would speak. So it was just so interesting. And afterwards, everyone's like, how'd you do that? I was like, I don't know. I have no idea. Truthfully, it had nothing to do with me and just providing her an opportunity to talk with me, I think helped. That makes me think of it. I know uh, I did a podcast with Dermot on this uh, about the, the guy where they said that, you know, he doesn't speak and he, you know, doesn't read or anything, and he's reading and copying these, you know, medical journals or medical writings, and right. then he's like, he hit me in the head with the fucking, fucking can. can. Yeah, I love that, the fucking can. Yeah, Sorry. That's a, that, yeah, but it was sort of this like, okay, wait, this is this is the report that I'm getting. So these are the things that like why we have so much emphasis on you know these pre-interview considerations, and then also of course you know establishing establishing rapport is really the part to really get how the individual communicates and how, you know, how, what they're going to be able to communicate. So, right. So it's a combination of all the things we can't necessarily bank on, you know, someone giving us an accurate report or just because their experience with somebody was one way doesn't mean that we might not have a different experience with them. And that could mean that they do talk to us or that they don't for that matter, don't want to share with us what happened. And I just always like to emphasize too, for, you know, for interviewers is that that doesn't necessarily mean it has anything to do with us. It may just be that, you know, particular day we have to remind ourselves that, sometimes people aren't ready to talk about what's happened to them and no matter what we do or how many tools we provide may not be the day or the time for them so just you know things that are important to remember to give folks the opportunity but also recognize it is you know their story to tell and whether they're ready or not is is always going to be a factor in that as well but rapport helps yeah you know what i think What's that? I think this was another good podcast. So <laughs> thanks for doing it with me. But I hope this was useful for people who are listening. Right. So always always try and get that information ahead of time. And you know you can build rapport with somebody who doesn't speak. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the work being done by Modell Consulting Group, visit our website, modellconsultinggroup.com, or follow us on social media.